You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I was always, I was so used to working with scripts and breaking scripts down. And it was always a passion of mine. And I was, you know, as an avid reader growing up, not just plays, but I mean, my dream is like to sit for a day in front of a fireplace, you know, immersed in some amazing piece of literature or some story. That is where, that's what drives me. That is what's exciting for me is being immersed in that. And nothing is more exciting to me than being around artists. Hi, everyone. This is Hal Luftig with my Broadway Podcast Network show, Broadway Biz, where every episode I will chat with my friends, some of the top theater professionals in the business, about the business of Broadway. My guest today is producer of film, television, and theater, Jenny Steingart. I most recently had the pleasure of working with Jenny, producing the Yiddish-language Fiddler on the Roof off-Broadway last season. Jenny is also the co-founder of Ars Nova, New York City's premier theater for emerging artists and new work. Ars Nova has launched the career of iconic artists like director Alex Timbers and Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Manuel Miranda. And I'm so excited she's agreed to join me on this episode of Broadway Biz. So, hello, Jenny Steingart. How are you? Hello, Hal Luftig. It's wonderful to talk to you, honey. Uh, lovely always to talk to you. Hey, Jen, do you remember when we first met? I do. I was working as an intern. I started as an intern at Jujamson in uh, 1992. And I was in Margot Lyon's office. Andrew Cato was her assistant at the time. And he very generously allowed me to kind of trail him. And then I ended up staying in Margot's office and working in Margot's office. And that was um, right at the time when Jelly's Last Jam um, was running and I guess Angels was prepping to open and you were working with Margot on both of those projects. And so you would you were in and out of the office all the time. And I just remember adoring you and we connected and, and the rest was history. That was Well, we can't have a conversation without talking about Margot, but we're going to do that in a little bit. I've always wanted to know, like, what role has theater played in your life? you know, from the earliest that you can remember to, I guess, now? Yeah, it's always been a huge part of how I identify and who I who I am. I, I kind of think like everyone who works in the theater in some capacity, we were all theater kids. You know, whether you're on stage or you end up behind the scenes, we were, we were all really theater kids. And I was, for a good portion of my life, a theater kid, but I was a performer. I was an actress. You know, it started really like most people, you know, doing the school play and doing and listening. Um, in my day, dating myself, you know, I was, I guess, must have been about nine years old when Annie first opened on Broadway. So I you know, Andrew McArdle was a couple of years older than I was, and I she was just aspirational to me. So I played on my little, I guess it was like a Fisher Price record player. I played the Annie LP over and over, just like a million other girls at that time. You know, I went on and I I I studied. I I took class. I began moving into working professionally. I went to NYU, not although not for theater, I ended up being a philosophy major, which is very practical. But while I was in New York, I auditioned and, you know, I, I worked a little bit, um, nothing, nothing major. I did commercials. I did a little work on the soap opera, but I always knew that I wanted to be a part of that world of 
the world of theater, the community of it, that just felt like my tribe. And then there was really a point where it became clear to me that I was not my best self. It wasn't the best version of me as an actor. I I knew I was never really going to be the kind of actor I would have wanted to have been if I were going to do it professionally. And I think the life wasn't really the right one for me, but I also knew there was just no way I was going to leave the business. So it was really about figuring out what I was going to do in the business because I didn't really know what a producer even did. I didn't realize actually that the whole time I was an actor, I was working as a producer at the same time and didn't even realize it. Like I remember um, we would put showcases together to try to get agents. And I was always the person who would, you know, rent the theater and find the director who was going to direct us. And I'd pick the material and work on the program. And, you know, when everyone else would be looking at the guest list in the evening, Uh, for performance, like who was coming, you know, I would be looking at that same list, but I was like, who comped that person? You know what? Like I was really thinking about, um, (laughs) you know, I didn't even realize it was a job. I didn't understand that. And I am, um, I'm, you know me, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly type A. I present type B, but I'm really type A. So, you know, I'm really always kind of pushing and going. And, um, I don't think it occurred to me that that just wasn't what you did. Like that's how you get work is you, you do that. I realized, you know, at a certain point in my early twenties that it just wasn't the right life for me, but I really wanted to find something that would suit my skill set and that would keep me in the world that I loved and allow me to have some kind of creative expression because, you know, up until that moment, my creative expression was through acting and I didn't understand just how creative and how fulfilled I could feel creatively by producing. Wow. Wow. That, that is, I always find it fascinating, Jen, when when people are producers or managers and their trajectory into that role. And yours is, is, a fascinating one, I must say, because you are a a terrific organized person. I don't mean I mean that in the the best sort of way, um, and it makes sense to me that how you became a producer, Jen. I want to ask you a question that I get asked a million times, uh, and I would love to hear you know your answer to it. How do you define producing? It's so funny. It's such a, it's such a simple question and it's so complicated also. I mean, because it looks, it, it looks different for everyone. But for me, when I think of what a producer does at his or her best, it's really finding a way to bring important stories to life, to bring them into life and all of the things that it takes to facilitate that, to make that happen. It's a job description that requires you wear a lot of hats. I mean, it is everything from identifying talent to being able to also have a a good relationship with talent, ideally, to financing it, it, whether you're writing a check yourself or whether you are raising that money. Um, having a sense of who to bring together. And I mean, it's the ultimate, <laughs> it's like being able to put together a great dinner party and seat the right people next to the right people. You know, it is really about creating a team and having a vision for what something can be. And really, you start with nothing and you end up with, a. if you've done it right, you have end up with something that is, beautiful and magical that is on stage that gets shared. So it's really wearing all of those hats and knowing enough to know when you need to step back and let other people take the wheel. But you're always, as a producer, you know, you're always sort of in the parent role. You're always making sure that you're helping people navigate through difficult conversations. Um, Sometimes you're the one, most of the time, you're the one having the difficult conversations. You know, you kind of have to be the grown up in the room. But at the same time, I think 
the challenge is as a producer to be, as I, to, as I just said, the grown up in the room who's willing to say no, but also to keep the sense of possibility open and to try to lead with yes as much as possible. And that's a really, that's a, that's a, a hard line to walk, but that's always my goal is how to encourage people and make them feel that anything is possible and also still sometimes not be popular with what my answer may have to be. Yeah. I mean, the the purpose of this podcast is to speak to people who are at the top of their field in different areas of theater and discuss how we match the financial side of the business. It is a business. It's called show business with the artistic side, because there's that part too. As you say, you want to support the artists, but you know sometimes what they want is, is financially unfeasible, yet you have to find a way to make that compromise, right? To give the artistic team and support their vision. But, um, you know, that's not always possible, as we know. So I would love to know when you feel the most creative as a producer, you know, in that process of trying to, you know, match those two entities, finance and and artistic vision. You know, most of my career has been about being in the trenches with with artists. Um, And part, part of it is also because... You know, I come to it from a, a very specific place because my background is, you know, as the co-founder of Ars Nova, which is a not-for-profit, and because of the origin story around Ars Nova and how we started and why we started, what drives me is different than, and that's it's not better or worse; it's just different. What drives me is is oftentimes very different than some of my colleagues. The things that get me the most excited are generally the um, ideation period of a project when um, we're putting together a creative team, when an idea is being born, um, as that's happening, working with the artist. After I, you know, after I came out of the acting world, you know, I was always, I was so used to working with scripts and breaking scripts down. And it was always a passion of mine. And I was, you know, as an avid reader growing up, not just plays, but I mean, my dream is like to sit for a day in front of a fireplace, you know, immersed in some amazing piece of literature or some story. That is where, that's what drives me. That is what's exciting for me is being immersed in that. And nothing is more exciting to me than being around artists. And I, you know, early in my career worked a lot dramaturgically with artists that we would be developing, um, even pre Ars Nova. And I curated, you know, like there was a brief period in time where Naked Angels had a, they had a long going series called Tuesdays, um, Tuesdays at nine. And that was where artists would come in and they would read plays and things that they were working on. And I, for a while, curated that for them. And this, God, that was really long time ago. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I don't even know what year that was, but that's a lot. It's going close to 30 years ago. Um, (laughs) Holy moly. But anyway, in doing all of that, I really discovered my the thing that got me out of bed in the morning, that was very, very exciting to me and continues to be all of these years later when I am in the middle of dreaming about what something new could look like. That's the most exciting part for me, which is also why my work at Ars Nova has been so fulfilling um, on many, many levels. I mean, that one, that one goes deep all the reasons why that's fulfilling for me. But but a big piece of it is the excitement of working with emerging artists um, or artists at the moment of inspiration for them or when I watch the penny drop and something cracks open for them that they struggled with. And even if I'm not the writer or composer, or I'm not the person doing that, just the fact that I've participated in the conversation around it. And maybe something in our conversation 
somehow led to that moment for the artist makes is is it makes me feel great and it makes me feel like a part of something bigger than myself so that's for me that's super exciting and deeply nourishing yeah what a what a great answer you you summed up exactly how i feel in that department when you're you're part of something that sparks an idea or or a vision or something like that it's it's it is kind of incredible it it makes everything else we have to do as a producer kind of bearable right mm-hmm. you know because you were you were kind of there when when you know that embryo sort of you know took flight um I want to go back a little bit because <laughs> you're we're, we're, you're ahead of me in where I want to go. So let's just go back for a second because I want to talk a little bit about Margot, um, dear Margot Lyon, who, you know, I was so touched uh, by your Playbill article in which you paid tribute to her uh, recently that that I wanted to just take a few moments and talk to you about her and your relationship you know, with her, because I think what we have in common, you and I, is that she was a incredible mentor and source of emotional support for both of us as we were just starting out. Can you share a little bit about your relationship with Margot and how you met her and what were some of the most valuable lessons she taught you and some of your you know best memories um, of her? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I um, I don't even think I really understood. I was, you know, I was in my early twenties and I don't think I even understood just how lucky and blessed I was to have ended up in her office. But, um, so in 1992, I made the switch from being an actor to being, (laughs) being an intern. Um, I made that big switch. Um, I ended up through the kindness of uh, two people, Abigail Seymour, who at the time was Rocco Landisman, who was the president of Jujams and Rocco's um, assistant and just kind of an all around amazing person. And she, you know, it's funny, I will say that I have always paid it forward because she took the time to pay it forward for me. Somebody um, a casting director. I, I'll never forget this. Actually, I was in as a fifteen oh one Broadway, and I was still acting. And I remember there was a, a casting director in those days named Leonard Finger, and he had his office there. And I really hated the schmoozing and like the networking part of being an actor. I, even though I'm a really social person, I just, I just didn't like it. And I remember thinking you know what, I really need to just make myself do this. And so I like knocked on his door and he had a tiny little office. It was just, I don't remember how many people were in it, but it was a pretty small um, operation. And he was sitting right there and we talked and I guess I must've been having a really bad day. (laughs) And I must've said that I was kind of leaning towards not acting anymore. And I was talking to him about what I, that I was looking for some other option. And he said, um, you know, I have a friend at Jujamson. Let me give her a call. And so God love Abigail. She brought me into Jujamson. I started interning and I ended up, as I said earlier, Andrew Cato, who was Margot's assistant at that time, we hit it off and he very generously let me trail him in the beginning. And then Margot got so busy that they ended up keeping me on in the office. So I was, you know, sort of an assistant to her assistant. Um, But right out of the gate, I think as, you know, I was a young woman and she was really great about nurturing women. And she was certainly wonderful to Andrew, but she was, you know, she really took the time to ask about me and know what I was interested in. And you know, there were two offices that were designated at Jujamson in those days that were non-Jujamson people, people who weren't on staff. And Rocco at the time gave them both to producers that he was working with. And those producers both happened to be women. They were Margot in one office and right across the hall was Elizabeth Williams, who at the time had done Crazy for You and Secret Garden and and so there I was surrounded by two really powerful women. Both of them were mothers. Both of them were in the throes of mothering. You know, their kids were still young enough that they were 
um, you know, full on moms and also really badass producers. You know, they were amazing. And Margot was a force. I mean, it was a lot of just my keeping my mouth shut and listening and trying to soak up as much as I could. But I watched her as she really fiercely advocated for the artists that she believed in. And, you know, people would joke, there's, there's the, the joke that, and I've read it now since her passing a million times about the statue, the, the sculpture in her home that she would continually, <laughs> it would make it in and out of the house, depending if she needed extra money or not. As much as that was a joke, it wasn't really a joke because that's how passionately she felt about the artists she believed in, the projects she believed in. And, you know, Jelly's Last Jam, like, if you really think about from a historical standpoint on Broadway, you know, you have you have a woman who, as a lead producer who's taking on a project and put together um, you know, a creative team, which had huge number, particularly in those days, of people of color. That just wasn't happening. And I remember, you know, the big conversation at the time um, and listening in the office, you know, to talking about how to get audiences of color to come and see the shows and how we were going to get people there. And Margot, she just she didn't care. She, this was her passion and she was going to do this show and she didn't care how many naysayers there were. And I heard her advocate for and fight for artists. And she took a, a chance, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and now people can look back and say, well, it was George Wolf, of course, but George Wolf wasn't George Wolf yet. You know, he was becoming George Wolf, but he, he's George Wolf in in large measure because of Margot's belief in him. And that stayed with me, her passion and her advocacy for the voices of artists was very influential for me. And it's definitely something that has stayed with me through my career, without a doubt. It's a beautiful story, and I couldn't agree more because she did the same thing for me, which only proves what you said is when she believed in something or someone, she almost became like a lioness, you know, not in a, not in a aggressive kind of way, but with, with steady passion and, and just calm demeanor. But she never, she never compromised. And I, when I was coming up, the ranks, and she was my mentor. It's interesting um, because I never actually, I don't think I stopped and said, oh, she's a woman in a male, you know, dominated business. I just was, I didn't even see her gender because she was such a great producer. That's right. Just soaked it up like a sponge. Even, even I wonder if you had this experience. There were many times she would ask my opinion. I was frightened to, to give my opinion because you know, what do I know? And she used to say to me, you know, Deary, remember she called everyone Deary. Deary. Oh my God. That was her word. Deary. Deary. And, and she said to me, Deary Dear- and Hun. <laughs> and Hun. Yeah. I got mostly Deary. I don't think she ever called me Hun. Um, yeah. I got Deary a lot, which I'm fine with. And I remember once she got kind of angry and she said to me, stop saying you don't have an opinion. You do. And every time you express it, it's usually dead on. And I don't ever want to hear you say that again. Do you understand? And I was like, wow, I just got like yelled at. (laughs) But it was that kind of, but she was so right. It was that kind of, 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 you know, guts that she had. And, uh, we miss her terribly. Well, and you know, she, I think that some of it also was like the messaging. Like there were times where she'd be going into a meeting with you know heavy hitters and she would say, come in and sit in on this meeting and take notes. And, you know, as I said, I was, I was just starting out. I was so green. I didn't know anything. And that was, you know, a vote of confidence for me. And you know, it also, you, what you just said um, about not seeing her gender, it's so interesting. A couple of months ago, there was an article that the Times did on female producers. And so 
um, I was interviewed along with many of my female colleagues. And I remember really naively <laughs> thinking to myself, what's, what's, what are people going to say? Like, what's, the, you know, I can't imagine because my experience has been so specific. And my experience was in part um, formed when I was so young and I was surrounded by two really powerful female producers. I truly, and I mean, this is, this is naive. And when I look at it, I, when I look back on it, even just, you know, within this last year, I feel kind of silly, but I'm also really grateful for what I'm about to say, which is, I mean, how it honestly never occurred to me that being a woman was going to be an issue because it never was an issue when I witnessed it. You know, Rocco Landisman didn't care if you were a man or a woman. He cared about what your ideas were. If you had a good idea, you had a seat at the table. I grew up and I, you know, I, I had grown up with um, a successful father in um, the broadcasting world and I saw how he treated people and it was the same way. And the messaging I always got at home was, you know, if you work hard and you, you show up and, you know, you're entitled to that seat at the table. So that, honestly, I never thought about my gender ever. And that is both, as I said, naive, and, uh, but I feel really lucky. So when I remember reading that article from the Times when it came out and I thought, oh my God, everyone, I mean, ev- look, everyone is, has his, her own experience, but I was so shocked that I was really the minority of people who felt like it hadn't been an issue for them. And I'm very, very grateful that that's been the case. But, and also I've had the, the, the good fortune of creating an environment in, by co-founding a theater where I helped create the culture of, of that place. So part of the culture of that place is, you know, no one looks at gender, no one looks at color, no one looks, I mean, that's just a, that's a non-issue. The barrier of entry is talent and that's it. And, but that's partially because that's just how I grew up in this business. That's what I saw. Now we have to, because you've mentioned it several times. So I feel I feel like we miss if we didn't bring up Ars Nova, which is one of the most creative. I'm going to call it a think tank, but in the theatrical world of a think tank that I have ever seen, um, nurturing talent and ideas and playwrights, directors that have gone on to incredible, incredible success. But you gave them their first stepping stone. Can you? Talk a little bit about the genesis and how Ars Nova came about. It's very personal to me in, in more ways than just it's, you know, a theater that I co-founded. It's because it, it comes out of what has, you know, to date been one of the biggest losses of my life. My uh, younger brother, Gabe, he had a brain aneurysm and um, he was just gone instantly. and. I was, you know, aside from the grief of all of that, which, you know, we've all experienced that grief. I was in my late 20s at the time, and um, I really had kind of an existential crisis, too, because having someone so young in the middle of their life, or at the beginning of their life, really, and he, to have them gone instantly was just such a shock, and it was very hard for me to wrap my head around it. And Gabe was, um, he was very deeply creative. He was, music, music was his love. And he was really probably one of the smartest, most um, innovative human beings I've ever met to this day. I mean, he really had um, quite an extraordinary mind. And at age 26, he had already, um, he had a classical music label which focused on early music and he was a real innovator and he had put out nine, I think at the time of his death, it was nine or 11 different albums. The spot that Ars Nova sits on right now was at the time in the late nineties was this tiny little building. I think it was like an accounting office and the, the 
the firm had gone bankrupt. And so he'd gotten this for a song and he bought it and was going to be constructing mastering studios. And in the middle of all of this, he died. And I was in such grief, but it was more than that. I felt like his song had been cut short and I didn't know how to continue it. It didn't feel right to me that I was going to live my life and live my dreams and he wouldn't and his presence wasn't going to be felt anymore. And so I always say that Ars Nova was like a grief reaction because early on when people would say, like ask me to talk about it and ask me about the business model. And I'd say, yeah, there was no business model. Like there, there wasn't, there wasn't one. The story that always kind of comes to me was something that happened the, the week he died. We sat Shiva. It had been catered because there were a lot of people coming through. And so uh, there was, you know, a small wait staff who, you know, went through. And at the end of the week, the last day of Shiva, the head waiter came over to me and he said, one of the servers has asked if uh, she could speak to you in the kitchen. And I remember thinking like, okay, you know, <laughs> like, and she introduced herself and she said, you know, I just wanted to let you know, I've been here all week. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I've been listening to people talk about Gabe. And I wanted to let you know that I'm the same age as your brother was. I'm 26 and I'm a fine artist. You know, I'm, I'm doing this job to pay the rent, but I'm a fine artist. And every night when I've left here, I've gone home and I've been inspired to paint. And I have painted a whole new series of art this week. And I'd love to show some of it to you if I could. And she had brought with her a large por portfolio and she took it out and she opened it on the kitchen table and she showed me these beautiful paintings that she had created. She had created that week. And I was so blown away because I thought to myself, you know, she didn't know my brother and his life and his death had inspired art in a completely different medium. It wasn't music. It was, it was painting. And that's when the penny dropped for me because I had been so concerned about what was I going to do? I loved theater. How was I going to continue his music? And then it dawned on me, I didn't need to continue his music. All, all I needed to do was give voice and opportunity to emerging artists who would have the chance to fulfill their dreams because Gabe never got the chance to finish it. My husband, who was not my husband then, he was my partner then, but we, conjunction with support from my family, we decided to start Ars Nova, the mission being to support emerging voices, emerging artists, early career stage artists. I think that Ars Nova has managed to kind of keep its integrity is because the origin story has never changed. And everyone who works there knows that story. And it has at every turn, if something has not felt aligned or has felt difficult, the culture of that place is you lead from the heart. You lead with good intentions. You're a good human being. And anything short of that, it's the wrong place for you. Early on, people said, because we did everything on a handshake in the beginning. I mean, everything. And we were, it was as Mickey and Judy as you could get. I mean, we literally, you know, took the tickets and programmed it. And, you know, we used to, we had no audience and we had no database. I mean, we had nothing. And although I had produced before, um, I had, you know, worked for a few years as a producer. I knew zero about running an arts organization. And honestly, we didn't even know what we had and we didn't know what we were doing. But everyone involved, we, you know, and we, we set it up and structured it in a way where I knew I couldn't really pay people, but we brought in curators at the time in exchange for office space. We had, you know, Mandy Hackett from the Public Theater did our theater programming. And it was really like a clubhouse. Um, and that was always the dream that you would 
bump into somebody in the elevator and maybe something would happen and a new project would come out of that or people would be standing around or sitting in the green room. And and that is exactly what happened. I mean, it was really just became all of this cross-pollinization with different artists in different fields, someone doing comedy, someone doing music, someone doing dance. Our first year, we managed in our tiny little shoebox of a theater to have two separate shows that both required a trapeze. The idea of like this, you know, hybrid of theater and music and comedy, and it was just always people thinking outside of the box. And the biggest compliment in those days we would get would be these like really incredible artists that only worked downtown or in Brooklyn, who 54th Street was like getting a nosebleed for them. No one ever came that far uptown. And they were like, you know, this is as far as we're going, but we're going to go because we, you know, they, they got behind, um, they got behind what we were trying to do. It was a really unusual start, but I think it's kept, as I said, it's kind of kept us honest. We always try to develop and, and really cared about developing young audiences. So making, you know, we subsidize our tickets so that you know, the average ticket price is as comparable as possible to a movie ticket as we can do in the early days. I mean, it was way below a movie ticket in the early days. Everything was free or five bucks. You know, we really keep our ticket prices down and that's budgeted in so that kids can afford to come because the barrier uh, to see theater now on Broadway is, is, it's untenable for, you know, even um, grownups, <laughs> you know, people with, with, kids. And I mean, it's just not, it's not possible. But, but so as a result of Ars Nova, I think even the way I approach, because I also work in commercial theater on Broadway and off Broadway, and I still approach it with a mindset that I have for Ars Nova and for the artist's voice and caring so much. I mean, we're not, we've always been artist-driven as opposed to project-driven. So Uh, Sometimes that's meant supporting an artist, even if we know that that project might not be the one, that doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is getting behind the artist and supporting them and giving them resources. And it's been different for everyone. Artists come at all different stages. Um, Some of them are super green. They have tons of talent, super green, don't have an agent, don't, you know, in, in that case, We'll help them get an agent. We'll help, but we've wanted to treat them at all stages of their career with respect and making sure that they um, were supported in every possible way. I, I was going to say, you know, you you also treated artists with incredible dignity. You know, first of all, every time I walk in that building, I always think of Gabe. I do. Um, you know, I had known him. I was at that shiva, and and I know how devastating firsthand, that was uh, for your entire family. And every time I do walk into that building, I do think of him. But I remember, you know, clearly when you were showing me the the space, it was almost done, but not quite. You hadn't opened to the public yet, but enough that we could walk around. You know, I remember being impressed. It did have offices. It had a very nice lobby. It had a great bar area. But then we went up to the top floor and I said, what is this? And, you know, because it was like an apartment. What the heck? You know, we were building an apartment in a theater and you said, because artists sometimes need a place to live. If they have no place to live while they create, you know, they're not going to create. You created this beautiful uh, space. I remember asking you, can I move in? Because um, it was it was gorgeous. But it, it became clear to me at that moment that it was not only the nurturing the talent, but but giving them the dignity that an artist deserves as they find their sea legs, if you will. I've always been impressed at Ars Nova, even, even most recently, when Broadway uh, announced that we had to shut down because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Ars Nova made an announcement that they were going to close their doors and that during that period, everybody, the staff, even the artists in residence were going to retain their full salary and their full you know, health benefits. You know, not many people, you were a leader in that as well as many things, but not many people 
did that. So it, it just goes to the point of how Ars Nova nurtures and protects and supports and all those things that um, is necessary to to theater and creativity. So my just want to say publicly, my hat is off to you. Always has been with that, always will be. You guys have created some amazing things. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's because it's true. It's true. I wanted to talk a little bit about Ars Nova's programs, which also um, I think are in, incredible in, in what they nurture. And specifically, I wanted to talk about the ANT Festival and the uh, the play group. Can you talk to us a little bit about those two? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Ant Fest is all new talent and it's an annual it's an annual festival. It's a month long and we showcase new work from some of New York's most adventurous emerging artists. It's kind of the next wave of pioneering theater. It's comedy, it's music, it's theater, it's burlesque, it's drag, it's variety arts, it's all kinds of like hybrid theater makers who we put on our stage with their most dynamic ideas. Um, and again, like everything else at Ars Nova, it is artist driven. You know, we choose based on it's approximately 30 nights. It's each night is a different artist or group. We get, you know, probably close to 300 applications at this point in time for Antfest, and we have somewhere between 25 and 30 slots. And we've had some really incredible people coming out of Antfest who were discovered. I mean, they're really, when they come to us, they're really emerging. It is one of the earliest levels of entry. But we've had people, you know, like looking back, like Jeremy O'Harris, who, as we all know from Slave Play, was in, uh, you know, was a part of Antfest. Um, Raja Feather Kelly, the wonderful choreographer, was a part. Matt Rogers and Bowen Yang. Bowen as uh, you may know, is was um, one of the first was the first Asian American on Saturday Night Live in the last couple of years. Whitney White came out of it. I mean, we've had some really great, great people coming out of Amfest. Um, so it's a very dynamic, exciting festival because you, you know you're really going every night. You could go you could go for thirty nights and see thirty different performances by thirty different groups or individuals. It's it's um, it's very exciting and dynamic. How does Ars Nova keep in contact with the artists after you know they've they've done their their stint, if you will, at Ars Nova? They've created some work, some don't. But the one thing that also impresses me is that Ars Nova keeps in direct contact. How does that? Can you talk a little bit? How does that work? I think a lot of it and. You know, and and we can talk in a moment too. I'll tell you about some of the other programs and play group is a big piece of it. Um, our writers group, but I think with with all of the programs that we have, you know, we are so kind of in the trenches with the artists. And because I always think of us as sort of like midwives, where we are there to help birth projects and help get everyone set up. And as a result, we. I think we represent a safe space for a lot of these artists. So you'd be surprised or not surprised how many artists we've worked with over the years, some of whom are very, very successful working at a very high level. You know, we will all, depending on our our individual relationships with those people, still get calls, you know, on the DL for advice or something, but it's just on a much larger scale now. And it's about projects we're not involved in. I think because we give so lovingly and so authentically to our artists because they become our family, they feel that way. I I hope, I believe they feel that way about us as well. When you work with people at the early stage of their career and um, it feels either like, um, depending on who it is that they're working with, um, it could feel parental, it could feel like an older sibling, but then there's a sense, there's a bond and a sense of safety. We feel really blessed that, you know, like at our benefits and things like that, we always have incredible people who are now successfully working in, in the business who 
always say yes and come back and help us raise money and help us support the next generation of artists. I like to think that that's because they feel that they were taken care of and so they're paying it back. So that's that's a lovely way to stay in touch. Yeah, and may I just say to our listeners that Ars Nova has one of the best yearly uh, gala benefits in the world. <laughs> Every year it has a different theme. Jenny is absolutely right. Some of that talent now that is on that stage is incredible, is one of the most fun galas and, and heartfelt. It's not just frivolity. You know, there there are people who really talk passionately about what the theater has done for them and why it needs to be encouraged and supported. And, you know, I wanted just to change direction for for a second, if we could. You know, I I respect you so and, and your opinion and your clarity at things. And I remember when I saw Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, it was still downtown at the uh, Holocaust Museum. And I remember calling you and saying, Jen, could you go down and see it? Because, you know, they were asking me to to move it and I was considering it. And I thought, is this like, you know, crazy, Mashuka crazy? Jen, could you go down and like, just tell me am my nuts? And, you know, you came back. I'm so grateful and thankful. You said, uh, not only are you not nuts, but I want to produce this with you. And it was, it made me so happy. And what we accomplished uh, together was was an amazing feat. You did something, and one of the things I love about you the most is that no is not in your vocabulary. I just love that. You know, if something needs to get done, there's no such word as no. And one day you walked into a marketing meeting for Fiddler in Yiddish, and you said, I want Fiddler to sponsor World Refugee Day. And I thought, oh my God. God, is she great? This, you know what that undertaking is going to be? And you, like I said, no, was not in your vocabulary, and you just did it. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about um, and, and what that day meant to you and, and sort of why you were so impassioned? I'm so glad you were, but I'd love our listeners to, to hear about the genesis of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and first and foremost, I, I don't want to take credit for that. Um, because that was also, you know, I, I worked, um, with two incredible people on that project on our inner team, part of the Fiddler team, but Catherine Markowitz, who was doing group sales for us at the time. Um, and Ross Yoder, who is my associate in my office. Um, both of them were not just instrumental to this, but Catherine, had been thinking a lot about uh, World Refugee Day. And she she was the one originally who spoke, the three of us had been speaking a lot offline about the refugee crisis. Um, and, you know, when Fither was running, just to remind the listeners from a timing perspective, this was really right in the middle of the crisis, refugees and immigrants and all the talk of children sleeping in, in cages. I mean, it was really just as horrible as <laughs> the only thing that's worse is every other thing that's happened in the administration since then. But um, it was up until that moment, really, I think the lowest of the low. And and so Catherine, Ross and I had been speaking a lot about it. And, and Catherine was actually the person who had called my attention to World Refugee Day coming up. And that was for me then a moment of like, well, we need, we need to do this. We need to do something around, around World Refugee Day. We endeavored to put aside one show on that day and get it underwritten through going to individuals. Um, there wasn't really time to think about going, you know, for grants or anything like we knew it was going to cost, you know, a certain amount of money. Um, and we were going to fill the theater 500 seats with all refugees. We wanted it. Um, and we did, we filled that theater that night with refugees as far back as Holocaust survivors all the way through current day. We had over, I want to say it was over 30 countries represented in the audience. Most of them had never seen theater before. They spoke multiple languages and we worked with 
easily 25 to 30 partner organizations all around the immigration space. You know how part of why I was so moved originally when you had me go down and see Fiddler, which was, you know, it's interesting. When you first called me about seeing Fiddler, the idea of my producing it is really not something that normally would have been in my wheelhouse because I have, you know, spent the last 20 years really looking at newer artists, um, original pieces, all of that. But then I went down and I saw it and I was blown away, blown away in, um, it was a really profound experience watching it. And it was also a time, again, just to contextualize where we were in time, it was, we were seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in the United States um, multiple universities within two weeks had swastikas defacing walls and teachers' offices, and there had been some some really unpleasant and disturbing and ominous uh, things that were beginning to percolate and happen. And so, it felt, of course, very important. On a personal note, I hadn't heard. Yiddish spoken since my grandparents were alive, which is a long time ago. And they used to, uh, they were both, you know, Eastern European Jews and they, um, (laughs) they would fight in Yiddish in front of us so that they could fight in front of us. And we wouldn't know what they were talking about. And then (laughs) amazing. And then of course there would be like two days of silence where they weren't speaking to each other. Um, and then they would talk in English again, but whenever they were fighting, it was Yiddish. Um, so I hadn't heard Yiddish. So the nostalgia piece of it was very powerful, but the part that was so moving for me beyond that and where I think the, the seed for world refugee day and what we did as, um, as a company then for the Fiddler company, what we did then happened at the end of the show the way the brilliant Joel Gray staged the ending of that show where they're leaving Anatevka and they're walking. First, the family is walking on the stage and gradually every cast member comes in and it's like a snake walking through as they leave. And I remember suddenly looking at it and I thought, oh my God, there is the caravan, Donald Trump. Like that's your caravan right there. What struck me is that although, of course, Fiddler on the Roof is the ultimate Jewish story, it's really so much more than that. It is the ultimate immigrant story, and it's iconic. It is, it is, you know, it's been produced in more countries and more languages than any other musical. It is with World Refugee Day coming up. It seemed like the perfect show to be experiencing in that moment in time. And then we had Luis Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda's dad, who is an incredible human being um, to begin with. He's and deeply knowledgeable and works in the immigration space tirelessly and has for so many years. He hosted uh, the talk back. We did a, a talk back after the show, which was so powerful. I mean, I looked like... <laughs> When I look at footage from the day, there were a couple of interviews that we all did. And there is one where I'm like, I look like a dish rag. And the reason was I was sobbing all day long, as was everyone else in that theater. I mean, people were just in floods of tears. And I think it was the fact, the universality of the story and of the immigrant experience and Um, That was so powerful to see. And I think that's why the show was also so successful and resonated for so many people. And I mean, how you know this better than anyone, how many people and how many reviews said this, but audience members would say, I've seen this show a million times, but it's like I'm watching it for the first time. And It is what, it is exactly what happened. And it was, I think, a combination of the fact that it was in Yiddish. And so as a friend of mine said so beautifully, she said, having it in Yiddish, it bypasses your brain and it goes right to your heart. It really was what that show was about for me. You didn't need to read the supertitles. You 
could understand every moment of that show because it is a human experience and the immigrant experience is a human experience. It is something that we all can tap into. And so it felt so essential to pay tribute and to, to also say to, to these people who are undocumented, we see you, you are seen and you're not alone. And we want to bring attention to this, to, to what's happening to you. And so that was really where it came from. And, um, you know, I certainly was with the support of everyone. I mean, the whole team was so extraordinary, but in particular, you know, I need to give a shout out to Catherine Markowitz and Ross Yoder because um, they were just extraordinary. What I've never seen and what was such a, a miraculous experience working on Fiddler, um, and, you know, you were such a, talk about like a, a leader who led with his heart also, you know, you were so full and so full of, of love. And, you know, I would, I'd follow you anywhere because you're, you're so, um, you're such a mensch, beyond being such a gifted producer, you're such a mensch. And that is um, not always the case in, in life. And, um, you know, I'm certainly at a phase in my life and a stage of my life where it's not even life is too short. Life is too long to work with people that you don't, (laughs) that you don't love, but you put together such a wonderful team because everyone working on that show they all, you know, we were a little off-Broadway show, but you would have thought from the way that people showed up from, you know, Pico, advertising to marketing, everybody showed up and treated us like we were a giant Broadway show with the kind of love and focus. And, you know, everyone got so behind World Refugee Day and what it represented. It was incredibly meaningful and really beautiful to watch because we all know in life, you know, you do this enough times and it's very easy to get cynical. And there was none of that, not even for a minute on the entire project, working on Fiddler from beginning to end, but but also in particular around World Refugee Day. I think it was a very meaningful day for everybody. And we all felt honored to be able to give back in some little way, even if it didn't move the needle in a huge way. Um, it at least, it, it put it, it put something out there that was well-intentioned. Yes, it was. It, it really was. And, and it was so effective. Um, I happened to be sitting at that performance behind these three women from Mozambique, and they showed up to the theater in their most beautiful uh, outfits. Two of them had children. One was a an infant. The other ch- child was, I would say, about three years old, and he was sitting on his mother's lap, and not knowing if he understood anything that was going on. But when To Life came on and they started singing To Life, To Life, he like wiggled out of his mom's lap and he stood in the aisle dancing. And I, you know, I just lost it. I can't even tell you the rest of the show. It just, I just, you know, was sitting there next to Stuart just weeping. It was a beautiful, beautiful day, Jen. And uh, I thank you for making that happen for Fiddler. As in everything in life, all good things have to come to an end, right? And and so uh, does this. There's this wonderful conversation that we're having. But before uh, I let you go, I have three questions that I ask every guest. I all I ask is that I ask them. You don't think about it. You don't overthink. You just answer. Okay. Okay. Um, so the first one is: What is your favorite musical? She loves me. Okay, number two is what is the wackiest moment you've experienced in the theater? Oh my lord, how leptic. That's such a tough one because there have been so many wacky moments at ours now. Wacky could mean silly, wacky could mean outrageous, wacky could mean, you know, I can't believe I just saw that. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with... I, I don't know if I'd call this the wackiest moment, but I would say the most unexpected, surprising moment actually happened last year. 
So I'm one of the producers, um, I think we've talked about, I'm one of the producers of Freestyle of Supreme, which I've been producing with my partners for uh, 16 years. And that was founded, it's the group that was founded by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Tommy Kale, and Anthony Viniziali. And so happily, um, we did, we just did a Broadway run that we ended a few months ago. But prior to that, we had done an off-Broadway run of it. And opening night of the off-Broadway run, the guys got to a part of the show where the, the particular segment is called True. And it is when they sit up on stools and um, the audience gives various words and they choose a word. And then they either, depending on who is on the stool, they either sing about it or freestyle about it. The, the rule is it has to be a true thing. And it has ranged every single time I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it hundreds of times over the years and it always um, is, it's my favorite part of the show, bar none. And this particular time, you know, and it can bring, it's, it's often brought me to tears or it has brought me to fits of laughter. And <laughs> I want to say that for opening night, the word that was thrown out that they chose I'm pretty sure it was tampon. So everyone else, you know, kind of went through their thing and it was very funny. And it was, you know, about someone's first girlfriend having to go to the store and get tampons for her, for her, whatever it was. But then it got to Utkarsh Ambutkar, who's in our show, UTK. He started, I don't know how it started, but somewhere along the way, I could see on stage the other, the other people on the stage, the other guys kind of looking at each other and looking at him because he kept saying, um, this was all freestyling. He was saying in the moment, I don't know how much I should tell you. I don't know if I should do this. And I could see they were all giving each other looks. And it was the look of, they didn't know whether he was going to say it. And I just kept thinking, what is he about to say? And he managed in freestyle his mother was in the audience because it was opening night. So everyone's families were there. He managed in freestyle to tell his mother that she was about to be a grandmother and that his girlfriend was pregnant. And the, I have chills actually <laughs> just telling you the story because in my life, I have never seen a reaction like that in the theater. And I don't think I've ever experienced a reaction like that. Like there was utter, there was like silence and everyone gasped. And I, whoever I was sitting next to, we like clutched each other's hands and like people, strangers were clutching hands. And then people, everyone got up to their feet and were applauding uproariously and people were crying. And, and it was, he was in complete shock that he had told his mother this way. And he got off the stage, came into the audience, hugged his mother. And he told me, he told me later that apparently his mother whispered to him, this was not the way to tell me. But, um, but it was the most magical thing to witness and to have shared with everybody. You are so right, Jen. I was there that night. Oh, that's by, right. You were there. By your, by your wonderful graciousness of inviting me to opening night. And I was sitting actually right in front of her. You're dead on. He said it. Everyone like kind of gasped and said, wait, is this a joke? to her and everyone was hugging her hugging her i was hugging her crying hugging her and what i remember her saying to him when she he whispered in her ear is i'm gonna kill you <laughs> oh my god amazing i mean it was amazing it was you're right it was the most spectacular thing i've ever seen in my life yeah it was a pretty epic moment so this third question is, the lesson learned from that is? Well, there you go. I mean, we just said it, right? <laughs> like, this is the power of the theatrical experience. This is why we go to the theater, to be moved and to have a shared experience with other people. I mean, it is where you're 
sharing tissues with the stranger next to you or clutching their hand because you just witnessed something and you don't even know them. That to me, it, it's, it is just the most emblematic example of how powerful an experience it can be to sit in a theater and, and share with, with strangers. Um, and it's also what is so beautiful about something like that is it exists only really in the minds of the people who were there that night to experience it. And, um, and that is, you know, a theater, despite the fact that now, of course, you know, people are whipping out their cell phones. One of the things we did with freestyle was we used um, yonder pouches, you know, where when you'd come in, you would have to put your cell phone in a little pouch and you didn't have access to it, just like the old days when we would go and not have our phones glued to us at every moment. And it kept everyone really present. And, um, and it, and as much as, you know, I wish in, on some level, of course, like that those, that was something people could see and experience how special it was for those of us in that room. And, um, and so I just think it, it, again, just speaks to the great power of theater to bring people together and to share. So Jen, like every great thing in life, you know, things have to come to an end. And so must this conversation that you and I are having, which I am so grateful you've taken the time and, and shared so many of your wonderful insights. Um, so I just want to thank you again for, for being on Broadway Biz. I am thrilled to have been on Broadway Biz. I'm always thrilled for any opportunity to talk to you and um, couldn't be happier at the thought of doing many more shows with you. So um, thank you. You heard it here, folks. She cannot back out. Um, okay, Jenny Steingart, what can I say <laughs> except thank you? And I love you, love you, love you. I love you, Hal Luftick. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network is produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor, and is edited by Derek Gunther. Our theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Biz and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Biz Podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.